In the later half of 1945, much of the world was both devastated and relieved. In September of that year, the largest war in history, World War II, was over. With more than 70 million lives lost, it was also the deadliest war in history. Nazi Germany was in the process of eliminating the Jewish population of Europe in a genocide called the Holocaust. Over six years, most of the world became involved in the war. The world powers at the time were grouped into two opposing sides, the Axis powers, made up of Germany, Italy, and Japan, and the Allies, also called the United Nations, the United States, the Soviet Union, China, and the United Kingdom. Before the end of the war, the four United Nations were discussing the post-war world. They wanted to figure out a way to disarm aggressor states and prevent such events from happening in the future. After the war, the United Nations became a formal international organization and was made up of 51 original founding countries. In 1948, the United Nations presented a document that outlined the human rights every person in the world is entitled to. This document was called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Basically, is the central document, the meaning-fixing document, the historical anchor of the human rights movement as we know it. And it's uh, one of the truly stage-setting texts of the 20th century that really have had an enormous influence on on what human beings do uh, for each other, on how uh, states and other powerful actors uh, are being held accountable, and um, on just how politics is assessed uh, domestically and internationally around the world. My name is Matthias Risse. I'm the Lucius Litauer Professor of Philosophy and Public Administration, as well as the director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. This document has inspired human rights movements around the globe and gave the world something tangible to strive for. There has never been uh, a document quite like this. So this is a document that formulates a vision at the global level, uh, something that uh, should be accessible, intelligible, subscribable for everybody, regardless of their religious, metaphysical, uh, otherwise philosophical background. It's meant to be a genuinely unifying document around the dignity of every person, no matter what your background otherwise. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Matthias Risa to discuss the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Can you take us through a brief history of how the idea of rights emerged over time? So before we get to talk about before we get to talk about so-called natural natural rights, we have a talk about natural law. Uh, and the idea of natural law is that there is something about the in the infrastructure of the world. So just like there is laws of physics, so there is also moral laws that are built in, either because the world just is that way, or normally in a more religious, in a monotheistically religious context like Christianity in particular, God created the world that way. God made the world this way, that there was a natural law. And again, one version of that is uh, is, is moral law. And at some point in the late middle and the high middle ages, late middle ages, early modern time, there was a process of emancipation of individuals that, such that 
The point wasn't so much more that there is some abstract rightness and wrongness out in the world as it was captured by natural law, uh, but instead that individuals, persons had claims against the world around them, especially against political structures around them. So, so in that sense, uh, so natural rights are kind of subjective version, subjective not as in open to opinion, but pertaining to the subject, pertaining to the person, that kind of version of of natural law, which again is a is a phenomenon, uh, a symptom of emancipation of the individual against political structures. This new concept of individual natural rights continued to persist through the centuries. Emancipating the individual against political structures became the backbone of thought in both the American Revolution and the French Revolution. So the natural rights surface very much in the 18th century when we get uh, things in particular like the uh, American Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution. Uh, within a few years of that, uh, then we're also getting the, uh, the French Declaration of um, uh, the, the, the rights of um, man and the citizen. And that's really, so at, at this stage in the Enlightenment, this thought of natural rights really comes into its own. So several hundred years after the inception, uh, this emancipation of individuals, of individual human being, of personhood, that the natural rights process as such started, really comes to fruition in the Enlightenment era and then leads to these early declarations of, uh, of rights. As awareness surrounding individual natural rights evolved, people banded together to ensure these rights were protected on an ongoing basis. Gradually, beginning at the late of the in the late 18th century, and um, and throughout the 19th century, we're getting more political activism also outside of established political structures. So we're getting um, people. We find people getting together. They're forming their own movements. They're forming their own organization to pursue moral goals as individuals getting together and wanting to extend certain protections also to others, often in very issue-specific domains. So the, this sounds more abstractly than, uh, than it is. So the first movement of that sort actually is the anti-slavery society that emerges in England then, uh, in, the, in, 18, in, the late, in the late 18th century. The anti-slavery movement of the 18th century was founded on the principles that everybody has a certain set of rights specifically the right not to be enslaved. They believed everyone had the right to liberty and the right to a self-determined life. And then throughout the 19th century, you have other movements like that where people are formulating, they're, they're shaping up rights talk, they're formulating rights for particular groups and they're getting organized around uh, pushing these interests, often in transnational ways. So we get the the labor movement, right? So we get the uh, this this massive industrialization in uh, in beginning in the 18th century, then into the 19th century. The working class quickly loses out, and they're getting organized. They 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 are getting organized really transnationally. Uh, and they're not always framing their concerns in terms of rights, but there is versions of that where they say, look, we have certain rights as laborers, as members of the workforce. And so you have a number of other things than in the 19th century, the women's emancipation movement. Women want to be uh, of equal standing uh, politically and in ownership arrangements to men. And think of the, the Red Cross and the larger humanitarian context in the late 19th century, where the idea is that 
those who are losing out most in uh, in warfare they need to be protected prisoners of war need to be protected civilians in war need to be protected the wounded need to be protected and so there's the there's the kind of humanitarian version of law thinking and so we have these we have these various particular niches and branches of rights thinking that becomes quite quite strong in the 19th century and in the and that leads in the in the 20th century then uh, to this uh, umbrella thinking and yeah? so we can't just think about protection of individuals in terms of uh, niche specific domain specific protections but we need to think of human beings as such being protected in a range of ways and of course this is then happening in the 20th century uh, before the background of completely calamitous breakdowns uh, of uh, of uh, of order, so the the two world wars, uh, the Great Depression. So there is uh, there, there is levels, extents of vulnerability that uh, that that make this thought that individuals as such need to be protected. At the time, individuals were not recognized or protected by international law. It was up to the states to protect or not to protect their own citizens. So um, would you point to World War II as the moment when the international community says, okay, that's it. Like we are going to try to provide more protections for individuals against especially, uh, you know, authoritarian state abuse. So the Second World War makes clear what organized power, organized state power, state logistics, the kind of the kind of capacities that we simply didn't have before the 20th century, what they can do if they are used against people rather than for them. The Second World War shows how much abuse can happen through a state machinery that uh, is out of control and how much damage, how much calamity, how much genocide very specifically can be inflicted on other people if, if there isn't an international order that prevents that. The clearest example of this is Nazi Germany. Under Hitler, the German government turned its power against its own citizens, imprisoning and murdering millions of Germans and leading a campaign of terror against German Jews. This persecution could happen in part because there were no international protections for the victims. So what we're getting then at the end of the Second World War is the founding of the United Nations. The United Nations is an intergovernmental organization that strives to maintain peace internationally. The United Nations was founded in San Francisco in 1945 and today is headquartered in New York City. When it was founded, all member states signed the United Nations Charter, the organization's foundational treaty. It outlined how the UN would maintain international peace and security and promote social progress. And as part of the charter of the United Nations, we're also having this thought formulated that there needs to be protection of individuals. So human rights figure, that language figures in the charter of the United Nations, that language became ever more prominent uh, in, the, in the late 30s, into the 40s. How, how did the United Nations come about? I mean, were these just calls between presidents saying, hey, you know, we want to start this thing. Are you in? How does it build the momentum and the legitimacy that it needed? Well, so very, very concretely, the uh, United, United Nations emerges from a war alliance. You know? So this is a, it's an, it's an alliance whose uh, crucial figures, 
pivotal figures were uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, American president at the time, and Winston Churchill. Um, but then, basically, people who become their allies are their allies in the in the fight against Hitler, Germany, and then also Imperial Japan. And so, uh, it is this war alliance that starts formulating particular goals, also for a post-war order. Uh, and this, uh, the United Nations, then is basically the place where these uh, these goals that were formulated for a post-war order were actually then written down and more systematically pursued. Now, one also very much has to see the United Nations uh, as an American product coming out of the New Deal. You know, so if you remember the, the, the New Deal in the 1930s under the presidency of FDR was an effort of actually bringing administrative capacities, new, new 20th century logistic understanding of what state power can actually do when developed in sophisticated way, ways to combine that with the social justice thinking of the day, that we need emancipation, that in particular the underdog in society needs to be protected, that something like the Great Depression that just happened uh, can't happen again. So the New Deal is a totally new way of thinking about public administration, both morally and logistically, in one country, in the United States at that time. And then people, then people came along and said, well, you know, if we can do this and if this is attractive, as clearly it is for one state at a time, why don't we build an organization like that globally? And that's, uh, that's really, that's the, that's the intellectual atmosphere in addition to these, these catastrophic breakdowns that have happened now several times in the 20th century, First World War, Great Depression and Second World War that, that create the mindset before which the United Nations becomes uh, not only imaginable, but actually a pretty quickly implemented political reality. Let's move now to the text. Um, who suggested that there be this declaration and who was involved in writing it? What, what were they trying to accomplish? The Charter of the United Nations formulates this goal. It's one of the goals that is formulated there of, uh, of human rights for individuals, in addition to the inviolability of states and the self-determination of people. So that's also in there. But then we have here uh, human rights for individuals also. That's not developed in great detail in the Charter. It's mentioned on a few occasions, but it's basically that the United Nations at its founding leaves this homework and it knows it needs an elaboration on that thought. To help define these individual human rights, the UN established the Commission on Human Rights in 1946. It was made up of 18 members from different nationalities and political backgrounds. This commission organized a smaller committee to draft the articles of what became the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The committee was called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Drafting Committee and was led by American diplomat, activist, and First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt. And they, they crafted this document, uh, which uh, was meant to be really a, uh, a cross-culturally acceptable document. So it was supposed to be really operating at the level uh, of humanity was supposed to be acceptable to everybody simply as human beings. And that document then had to make its way through uh, various uh, uh, committees of the, uh, of the just freshly constituted uh, United Nations machinery. And then uh, it was uh, put to the General Assembly, to the meeting of the General Assembly of the United Nations, which on that occasion actually met in Paris. Uh, so it was then on December 10th, 1948, that uh, that the Universal Declaration was passed. Today, the United Nations is made up of 193 member states from around the globe. 
When it was first established, it was made up of 51 member states. This was a very different world than the one of today, steeped in imperial rule. This was a time um, before most of Africa was decolonized. And so there, there, was an, there was African involvement in this process, but it was uh, involvement uh, from Egypt and South Africa. Um, sub, so black Africa really wasn't involved in this at all because that uh, black Africa was uh, almost, uh, was not entirely, but almost exclusively, almost entirely colonized at that time. Much of Asia was also colonized uh, at this time. And of course, this, this mattered also. So the, uh, the United Nations uh, was shaping up at a time uh, when these colonial empires were still around and were basically, as the United Nations shaped up over the first uh, 20 years of its existence, increasingly there was also a process of uh, decolonization, which completely changed the dynamics in the United Nations uh, also. And these new members were engaged also in, the, uh, in, in what, the, what would come of this organization. Let's now discuss what, what does the text say? Um, what's its structure and what are, you know, what are the key themes of it? So this was meant to be a document that catered to a range of different concerns, partly interest of different constituents. So there's a couple of articles in there that are very much about the about demands that had come out of the labor movement, but then also particular particular ideas that had been very prominent in particular regions. Latin American socialism, for example, is, uh, is very visible in, in certain uh, parts of this document. So there were different niche-specific constituents and, uh, and different regional constituents that are clearly visible here. The document is organized into two parts. The first is the preamble, which explains why the document is being drafted. And the second is the main body of the text, made up of 30 articles. It's distinctly a document, so you may think something like Ten Commandments, right? This is something that uh, one, one can readily learn by heart if one so chooses, and it can be taught. It's, a, it's great. Pedagogically, that's fantastic. So they deliberately decided not to produce a short document, but a comprehensive document, really a, a document that covered the whole range of domains of human life where individuals would need uh, protections and, uh, and provisions. And they also decided to list a pretty substantial uh, preamble. So a preamble is always where you write down what the background circumstances are um, that explain why you need this document now. There's various allusions, allusions to national socialism, so the anchoring uh, in the times is very in, in these particular times is very clear, but it's also the enlightenment origin of this whole tradition of putting out declarations of rights uh, is also very clear there through references to themes like dignity and the inalienable nature of rights and the equality of all human beings and the fact that rights are acquired at birth through the moment of birth. So this is very much enlightenment thinking about the emancipation um, of, the, of the person. The 30 articles following the preamble do not appear in order of importance. Over time, the United Nations has insisted that all of these articles are of equal importance, interrelated, and they belong together as a package. No one single article is prioritized over another. But it's still striking what, what comes first, and you would think they put the right to life first, or uh, a right not to enslave first, or a right not to be tortured first, but uh, that's actually interestingly not what they do. So all these things come, but they come in Articles 3, 4, and 5. 
uh, Articles 1 and 2 uh, are basically, they, uh, they each capture pretty much the same thought, namely a non-discrimination thought. So Article 1 says that all these, uh, all these entitlements and all these rights in the Universal Declaration, they really pertain to everybody. Everybody has them equally because everybody is born uh, free and equal. And then Article 2 uh, basically states the same thought in a different way. Namely, it says, so these articles apply to everybody indiscriminately and regardless of, and then there's a long list of categories, uh, race and color and language and political affiliation and uh, nationality so the, 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 and gender. So the usual, the usual categories beginning with race, so race is really the one that's listed there first, in terms of which people had been traditionally discriminated against. This document explicitly states that all people are created free and equal. The American Declaration of Independence also states that everyone is free and equal. But history shows that this really only applied to white men. At the time the Declaration of Independence was drafted in 1776, women were not allowed to vote and slavery was still legal. And what the Universal Declaration does, and that is already one of the most remarkable things about it, is uh, it starts by making very clear that this is not what we want. This, is, uh, this really applies for everybody. Do not even try to find any resources in here that would allow for any kind of discrimination. The 30 articles outline these universal rights, including things like the right to education, freedom from torture, and the right to social security. I had been struck earlier that one of the themes of the text is about human dignity, not just sort of freedom or safety, but dignity, which sounds to me linked that there is a vision for, you know, what, a, what both the international order and national governments need to, to do in order to help, you know, each individual live up to its potential. Where, where did those ideas come from? What, what, were, they, what were they drawing from? Well, you see, interestingly, uh, or importantly, uh, the, the Universal Declaration was meant to be a document that everybody should be able to accept. They tried to keep the, the, the foundational thoughts, the metaphysical background, the, the religious background, as limited as possible. So yes, there's talk about dignity. Yes, there's talk about inalienable rights. Yes, there's talk about rights acquired at the moment of birth, but you will not find any references to God, for example. Uh, so these ideas, especially the idea of dignity, is, is given here, is, is formulated here as a, as, as a way of saying, look, there is something really special about human beings. There is something really special that is present in every single person. It needs to be respected and honored and advanced by state power. But how you ground it, how you fill it with metaphysical substance, religious substance, secular background thought, that is actually deliberately left open so that different cultural circles could uh, attend to that matter in their, uh, in, their, in their own way. Once the document was drafted, it was presented at the Third United Nations General Assembly in Paris, France. So it is important it was actually not rejected by anybody. So it was put to a vote on December 10th, 1948. Uh, but then a, a number of countries abstained. Uh, so a number of the, uh, the communist countries abstained because they were, communism is not really on good terms with rights thinking in the first place, that, that individuals, uh, this is kind of a societal atomism. And that's something that, that uh, communism is, is just not very comfortable with. Even though several countries abstained from voting, they recognized the importance of this document and did not try to undermine it. 
a lot of countries were in favor of the declaration, and no country opposed it. And yet it didn't actually change the world right away. Uh, you may ask, well, how was the world different on December 11th, uh, 1948, uh, you know, the day after this document was passed? And the answer to this is really not very. So the impact of this document really was not immediate. And that was also, um, for, so for one thing, that's this new thing, right? There's this new paradigm. There's this also this new organization. And it simply takes a while for that organization, the UN, and that document to kind of make its way into people's heads and into the into uh, the into into the thinking of organizations, and so that that couldn't possibly happen overnight. One reason it didn't change things immediately is that it wasn't actually a legally binding document. One thing also worth emphasizing is this: it's it's important that this is called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, so it's by itself not legally binding. You know? So it's a declaration. It's a declaration by the General Assembly. It was a very long, many decades long process and still in, it's still a work in progress to transform those non-binding rights on the list of the Universal Declaration into a set of international treaties that then would be binding on its signatories. Although the document was not legally binding, it did lead to the creation of two legally binding covenants that protect human rights. In 1966, the United Nations adopted the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Social, Economic, and Cultural Rights. Is it fair to characterize it then that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights set um, some aspirations for countries around the world and in the years since, there has been a great deal of effort to try to enshrine them into binding treaties? So we, we do find uh, uptake of ideas from the Universal Declaration uh, over time, right? So uh, first of all, of course, there's, there's already there's regional alliances where, where uh, they also already live, right? So it's not like the, uh, this is always worth emphasizing. So in 1948, we are, um, we're not just getting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but we're also, we're already getting, we're, we're getting an intra-American document on human rights also, so Latin America is really tremendously active and crucial for pushing this rights thinking within the Americas and then also at the, at, the, at, the, at the global level, bringing it into the UN system. But then also as time goes by, uh, there is in, there's increasing um, uptake really by, by very different actors. So uh, one thing that's still very, um, not very much known is actually before there was a civil rights movement, especially in the American South around Martin Luther King, uh, church groups, black church groups in the American South actually were very attracted to the human rights paradigm, right? Because the point of human rights is to say, these are rights that we all have, that everybody has as human beings. And so we should, we should draw on them and we should say to all these white people around us that, you know, we have these rights and that they need to be respected. And so black church groups in the South got quite attracted to the idea of human rights. American activist Malcolm X took up this call as part of his work fighting for racial justice in the 1960s. In the last couple of years before he was um, assassinated, he became a human rights, a kind of global human rights personality because he also picked up on this thought of uh, human rights belonging to all human beings and look what the white majority does with the, the bl- black minority in the United States. And that needs to be pilloried at the international level. He tried to build alliances in increasingly decolonizing Africa, 
in Europe, you wanted Americans, you wanted the United States to be embarrassed. You wanted the United States to be uh, to, to be uh, internationally pilloried uh, for its human rights abuses, for what it did to some of its people who should not be so treated as human beings. And so, so we find up, uptake like that. We find organizations that get founded. Amnesty International gets founded in the, in the early 1960s. Amnesty International is a non-governmental organization founded in 1961 in the United Kingdom. They are focused on promoting, quote, a world in which every person enjoys all of the human rights enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other international human rights instruments. Jimmy Carter is the first president who formulates human rights as part of American uh, foreign policy. And basically, since the late 70s, uh, human rights are really on a roll. And then this continues through the 80s, the language that Ronald Reagan is using this more language of democracy, but really this whole paradigm of moral goals connected to human rights, that they are important for foreign policy that has arrived. There's yet more organizations, uh, Human Rights Watches, the earlier versions of Human Rights Watch are founded in the late 70s. So, so there's just a lot of momentum in, in institution building, in, in passing of international law, in civil and, and civil society organizations, transnational civil society organizations. So, so, so human, the, the Universal Declaration is having an impact on the world because it is going like a wave through these decades and is bringing in more and more individuals, organizations, states are picking up, the European Union is increasingly getting uh, involved in, in human rights. By putting these rights into a document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights gave people something concrete to strive for and protect. It's to make sure that individuals have certain provisions, have entitlements, have these possibilities of flourishing, uh, have, having their personality flourishing, and that the international community, the, the, the community of states, the inter international society is accountable for that, that that is what we need to do. And uh, really, seriously, I mean, what is power for if it's, if it's not for serving the people, especially those who are losing out most? How does it continue to shape American governments and other governments around the world? Do, do they refer to it? Do people point to it at the UN assembly? You know, is it still alive? The United States has a kind of a very mixed relationship with uh, with, with with human rights. Yeah? So on the one hand, um, you know there's a lot of there's a deeply ingrained rights culture in the United States. The many of the more influential, the larger, the more influential um, human rights NGOs are based in uh, in the in, in the United in, in the United States. Um, you know, and in, in recent years, we have also seen a lot of local activism that wants to do, you know, human rights audits and things like that. So we see a lot of that. Uh, but then we also see in the in the American particularly establishment a uh, a substantial standoffishness when it uh, when it comes to international oversight. You know? So the United States, interestingly, has a fairly poor um, ratification record for um, even the major human rights treaties. You know? So, um, and uh, they would often they would they only ratified them with substantial delay, and and that that is that is not because they are averse against much of what's. In there, in some cases, that's also the case. So, you know, especially Republican governments are not uh, are not um, 
much enamored of the idea that social and uh, and economic rights should be state priorities the way the human rights movement sees that. Uh, but um, more more often than not, it's the, the point is really more Americans don't want to be subject to international oversight, right? So they think that's uh, uh, that's uh, that's by itself problematic. So so that's the this is the kind of this kind of the kind of discourse that we have in the United States, right? This mixture of you know this kind of typical American mixture of uh, the standoffishness that comes from thinking around American exceptionalism up to isolationism, and then we have. An interventionalist streak. There's a various um, um, movements in American thought that kind of coalesce around human rights discourse and that lead to the particular way in which human rights are used in the in the United uh, States. The United Nations knew that this document was the first of many steps on the path toward universal human equality. The last sentence of the preamble illustrates the process for how these rights become realized within society. And uh, what it says is, well, actually, what needs to be done here is, th- is we need to, through, it is through teaching and education that we need to strive towards the realization of the rights listed here, both domestically and internationally. Yeah? So the, the first order of business is teaching and education. The first order of business is teaching and education because we are not changing the world through this document unless people are actually taking this in, unless people think about it, talk about it. And so basically doing a show like we are doing here, that's exactly, you and I are doing this right now and the listeners are doing this right now. We are exactly engaging in this project of coming to terms with this project by thinking about it and then also spreading, uh, spreading the word around it. Since 1948, the world has made enormous progress in the scope of human rights but there is still work to be done. Today, although everyone is considered equal on paper, we're still a long way from fully realizing these rights. But it is through the cycle of discourse and action that we move closer to a more equal world. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.